Welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic, the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question is, should you tell your employer that you are mentally ill? So I received this question many times throughout my career, not just in working with YouTube, but I've received it from many clients over the years and many people that were clients of people that I supervised. And the only real advice here is to see a counselor because there's just too many variables in this type of situation to know what to do, to make a blanket statement like yes or no. It does require personalized professional attention to make this decision. So here I'm really just speaking generally about this topic. Now, one area I could answer here, and this is maybe a little bit unexpected, if someone's not mentally ill, then they shouldn't tell their employer that they are mentally ill. Now, of course, that's not what the question is getting at. The question is presuming that an individual has a mental illness and they're debating whether to tell their employer or not. But certainly I want to look at all angles, right? So if somebody's not mentally ill, then you don't want to lie and tell an employer that you are mentally ill. I have actually been asked that question before too. And of course, my answer, as I just mentioned, was of course not. Why would you do that? That would be deceptive and lead to a lot of problems. So sticking with the question the way it's asked normally, somebody has a mental illness and maybe it's interfering at work or they're afraid that it's making work difficult in some way. And they're thinking about telling their employer about the mental illness in the hopes that some sort of adjustment could be made. So why is this such a hard question to answer? Well, the first area here is the term mental disorder is nonspecific. There are huge differences between disorders. Consider just some of the disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. We see personality disorders. There are 10 different personality disorders, major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and substance use disorders. And there are many types of substance use disorder. So just a few disorders there, and I could go on for a long time with that. There are a number of disorders. And on top of this, you have comorbidity. So you have one disorder, and that can present with another or several others. For example, we know that depression and substance use disorders are highly comorbid. They tend to co-occur. So to use an analogy here in terms of what the term mental disorder means, Think about the term house. Say somebody came to you and they said, hey, I have a house for sale. And maybe you don't know this person well, or you don't know where they live. I have a house for sale. Do you want to buy it? Well, house can mean a lot of things. Yes, it gets you into the general area. You know, it's probably a dwelling where an individual or a family can live. A lot of times when people use the term house, they do mean single family home and not a town home or something like that, not a trailer, not an apartment. So it does give you some idea, like you understand maybe what it would generally look like. It would likely be in a neighborhood, depending on the area where you lived. Of course, it would have certain characteristics, like you would presume it would have a roof, windows, floors, like there's some basics you would know, but you would still want much more information. House only gets you into, again, the general area. It doesn't really give you enough information to make a decision on whether you'd want to buy that particular house. This is the way I feel about the term mental disorder. It gives us a general understanding. It means that somebody has 
a disorder that's listed in the DSM, but it doesn't really tell us a lot more than that. So it really depends on the disorder, it depends on comorbidity, and of course it depends on severity differences. So we see mild depression all the way up to severe depression with psychotic features. On the other side of this question with employers, we also see different situations here. Some jobs demand emotional regulation. Some jobs demand that somebody's not using substances. So there are legitimate concerns that employers can have about certain types of symptoms with mental disorders and what's required for their type of work, for the type of employees they're looking for and the type of jobs they're trying to fill. So looking at this another way, why is this even a question we have to deal with? Why doesn't everyone just tell their employer about their mental health status, about any mental disorders they have? Well, there are a number of reasons that people don't. And a lot of it has to do with the reaction of the employer. Employers oftentimes get scared. There's a stigma around mental health. And this is not something where I'm singling out employers and saying that they're adopting this stigma or buying into this stigma. Yes, they do that, but we also see that the general public does and mental health clinicians do, right? There's some research that indicates that mental health clinicians have the same level of stigma, associate the same level of stigma with mental disorders as do members of the general public. So employers are really just like everyone else in that sense. They're adopting this stigma and there's a lot of misinformation. So what I hear from employers when we talk about mental disorders and employment, they're worried oftentimes that somebody with a mental disorder is going to be violent. I hear this all the time. They say things like, well, if we hire this person with this disorder, what if they bring a firearm into our place of employment? This is really just about misinformation, right? The employers, again, like everyone else, they just don't understand that the risk of violence with mental disorders is actually quite low. And when we do see an increased risk of violence, it's with specific disorders under specific circumstances. So oftentimes we see a disorder, if you add on substance use disorder, especially if somebody's actively using substances, yes, that'll increase the risk. But for most other situations, we don't really see an increased risk of violence. I've talked about this before in other videos. So I hear this. I also hear that individuals with mental disorders miss too much work. And yes, we know there is a problem with certain disorders and absenteeism. But again, it depends on the disorder and there's ways to accommodate that. I also hear from employers that they're afraid there's going to be a disruption at work, that an individual with a mental disorder is going to be rude to customers or not get along with coworkers. Again, with certain disorders, like some personality disorders, for example, that may be an issue, but they're taking the term mental disorder and they're attaching all these different things to it without knowing the specific circumstances. And I think we're at a point here where misunderstanding mental illness can no longer really be an excuse. It can't be an excuse for employers or mental health clinicians or the general public. At some level, this just becomes irresponsible, right? Employers are there to make money, right? They're trying to sell a good or a service and they want to make money and they want to hire people from the community and that's good. And they want to take money. They want to accept money from people without mental disorders and people with mental disorders. But yet when it comes time to hire individuals, we see discrimination with those same employers against people with mental disorders. That's not being a good member of the community. If you're gonna be an employer, you have to be responsible. And I've actually seen a lot of change in this area in the last 20 years. 
a lot of times we think of this question of mental illness and employers. And again, we're kind of looking at the employers as a large part of the problem. But I've actually seen a number of good employers. I've seen a lot more openness to learning about mental disorders, to making accommodations, to being a good member in the community. So I'm really optimistic on this point. I think that in general, yes, there are some problems, but in general, employers are moving in the right direction. And in terms of answering this question, of course, a lot of this is dependent on the relationship that an employee has with an employer. So if we see more good employers and we see better relationships, it becomes easier for employees to talk about mental illness with employers. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. So now I'm going to review the options here, and I've kind of boiled this down to really just two options. Somebody with a mental illness who works for an employer, who's concerned about their own performance as an employee, and they're worried the symptoms are going to interfere, they can tell the employer or not. Now, of course, there's different ways to tell and different amount of information to share and a process that can be followed. But I'm just going to boil it down to these two options and take a look at these with some examples. And these examples are from direct and indirect observations. I've talked to other counselors, supervisees. I've seen examples in training, research literature. But here I'm not using any identifying information. Sometimes details are changed here just out of an abundance of caution. And this is true whenever I use examples in videos. So some examples we're telling was a bad idea. So this would be a situation where somebody has a mental disorder and they told their employer and it didn't work out. So consider this example. Several years ago, somebody involves themselves in an assault. So a woman assaults another woman. And in that process of committing a felony, she's injured and develops post-traumatic stress disorder. So a lot of times we think of post-traumatic stress disorder. Of course, we think somebody's the victim of a trauma. Well, they can also be the perpetrator of an offense, and that can lead to trauma. 
And because of this assault, she's convicted of a misdemeanor, even though it was a felony. And she goes to work for an employer in an office type environment. She has post-traumatic stress disorder, again, from this assault that she committed. But they don't know about the criminal record because they only ask about felonies. So a coworker in this office environment tends to yell a lot. And this reminds her of the assault when she was yelling at the person that she was assaulting and when they were yelling back. And it kind of triggers these memories and even flashbacks. So she goes to her employer and really just tells this whole story. It talks about the post-traumatic stress disorder, how she developed it when she was committing a crime. And of course, not surprisingly, she was fired because they were concerned that she had a history of assaulting people. So you can see this example didn't work out well. And what could really be done differently here? Well, we have to think about, is it always a good idea to give the reason behind the diagnosis? We also have to think about the amount of information that's shared. Once that information is out there, there's no taking it back. So in many circumstances, when sharing would be a good idea, it would still be smart to restrict the amount of information. Certainly, indicating that there was some sort of criminal activity in the past, attaching that to a disorder, that I would think is almost always a bad idea. Another situation I remember that is, again, the same area where telling turned out to be a bad idea was this guy who worked for a delivery company. And on his delivery route, one of the customers was a bar. It was a bar where they served drinks. And this was just one out of many places, I think, 60 or 70 that he delivered to each day. But he had a history of alcohol use. And when he'd go into the bar, he'd have a lot of difficulties. He'd want to buy a drink and all this. And the way the delivery kind of company was structured, he did have to walk in to deliver the item. So he told his employer, he's like, look, I want this particular place taken off my route. And of course, he was fired because they realized he had a history of using alcohol. Now, I think that decision to fire him, just like with the decision we saw before with the assault, that could certainly be questioned. I mean, he has a history of alcohol use, but he wasn't actively using alcohol. So I'm not implying here that the employer made a good decision, but it is the decision that they made. And this one's a little more difficult because he didn't want to go to this particular stop. And of course, we wouldn't want to encourage somebody to lie. But his reason was because he was in recovery from alcohol use. So I don't really have a good idea of what could have been done here. This is a little more difficult of an example. You don't want to lie, but telling the truth didn't work out either, and yet there's still a problem. So that's really kind of a more difficult scenario. So how about a situation where telling the employer would have been a good idea or may have been a good idea? Well, consider this example. A woman works in a factory. She has obsessive compulsive disorder, and her job on this assembly line is to operate these controls, right? These different buttons, switches that she hits and they operate machinery on an assembly line where people are working. And because of the OCD, she has this intrusive thought and then this compulsion where she touches these buttons so many times, right? So she might hit one of the buttons on the assembly line to activate a machine, but then she'll touch it several other times, maybe five times or 10 times. We call these counting rituals. And what happened in this situation is that the, the employees on the assembly line, the other employees became nervous because as she was touching the button, not pushing it all the way down, but just touching it, 
they were worried that she was going to activate these machines when they were in an area where that wouldn't be good, right? If you have some sort of machine that welds, for example, and you're trying to work on something and it comes down, it could really hurt you. It could actually lead to death. So I can understand why they were concerned about this particular counting ritual. So with this situation, they became frightened, the other employees, and this employee was fired. So this is one of these situations where it does seem like telling the employer would have been a better idea. And I have some strategies I'll talk about in a moment about when telling makes sense and how to go about it. But here we can see that if she had told the employer, then maybe they could have relocated her to a different area where she wasn't operating controls, changed her job around a little bit different. Now she could have told them and they could have fired her anyway. So again, you don't always really get a clear idea about what would be a good or a bad decision. That's one of the unfortunate parts about this particular dilemma. All we really know here is that not telling in this situation led to a bad outcome. We don't really know for sure that telling would have led to a good outcome. So another example like this would be a situation where somebody has major depressive disorder and they're missing a lot of work. And this is legitimate. The disorder prevents this individual from attending work at the same rate as somebody without the disorder. And then the employer gets upset by this because of all this missed time and they end up firing the person. So here it's kind of the same situation. You don't know if telling would have prevented this, but it seems like weighing everything, it's a better move than simply being fired because of absenteeism. So what can be done differently here? Again, we don't know. We can't play it out and know what would have happened, but it seems like telling the employer would have been better in these situations because then at least an accommodation would have been a possibility and that certainly beats being fired. Another important area to consider with this question is timing. And I've heard all the different arguments around timing in this. Should an employee or a potential employee tell an employer before they're hired? Should an employee tell right after they're hired, a while later, like six months or nine months later, or much later? And there's pros and cons with each of these different situations. If you tell an employer before you're hired, they may not hire you. Right. We know discrimination against people with mental disorders is remarkably common. So that would be a concern there. If you reveal it immediately after being hired, you may get some of the same effect. They may feel tricked like you should have told them. If you wait a while later, I've seen the best argument made for this. You have a relationship with the employer. So you wait a little while, like six months or nine months before the problem really interferes with work too much. But again, after a relationship is established. So I've seen a good argument made for this timing scenario, but of course it does come with some disadvantages. And then we see the argument around telling much later. So waiting until the symptoms have really caused a problem at work and then saying, hey, look, there's this problem. There's this reason behind this behavior or these feelings. So the concern with this argument is if you wait too long, if you wait a long time, the employer, well, first of all, they're already upset because of the disruption with work. And they may just think that you're bringing it up. You're saying there's a mental illness because you're afraid of being fired. So it seems like that might not be the best timing. But again, for all these different positions, you can make arguments both ways. The bottom line is that if somebody has a mental illness and they're considering talking to their employer about it, this comes with risk. Sometimes it is the best option when it's necessary where the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. But I think the only way to really handle this is to consult with a counselor, to go to a mental health counselor and talk through all the different variables. 
the mental disorder variables, the employer variables, the timing variables, all the different nuances and details of the situation so the counselor can work with an individual and figure out a plan that makes sense to minimize risk and to maximize potential benefit, to really try to help the employee to gain that accommodation that they need without losing their job. Now, as a mental health counselor, I've been in this situation many times with clients where they've asked me to talk to their employer. So they give me a release and they ask me to talk to their employer on their behalf to explain the mental disorder, to explain the symptoms, and to talk through what accommodations might be given. So I've done this a number of times. And my thoughts from a counseling perspective, from a professional perspective here, would be that it's good to call the employer and to be friendly, not to be adversarial, to try to collaborate with the employer to find a solution for your client and to educate the employer about the mental disorder. You don't want to come in there and try to be intimidating and kind of suggesting that if the employer doesn't cooperate, that your client is going to file a lawsuit or anything like that. Lawsuits rarely work out for clients. I think most cases, the best option, again, is to be friendly and to come in there and really try to focus on how everyone can be happy, how a solution can be generated and the employer can get what they need and the client can be satisfied with that employment relationship and the responsibilities and all that. So really just maintaining a positive mannerism and going in there and trying to be helpful, trying to be on everyone's side at the same time. Of course, you're advocating for the client, but you have to understand that the client works for that employer and that employer has something at stake too. So it's really about looking at all angles and being fair and balanced and reasonable. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslanga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslanga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslanga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave.